Okay, good evening everybody. I imagine we're mostly all here, so we will kick off. Welcome back, great to see you all. I hope you grabbed notes. If you missed a week, I'll try and remember to the notes there, and also they are available um, at the information desk and online. So lots of ways uh, to catch up if you do miss a week. Today, I'm really excited about, because we're actually gonna get to one of the Gospels. We've done two weeks of introductory stuff, really important things, but today we're gonna see how all of that hopefully helps us to actually read one of the Gospels. Two quick things, two quick apologies to start off with. First is week one, I think I said to you, I'll make sure there are Q&A times so it doesn't get interrupted the flow. And I think last week I didn't offer any Q&A times. So because I'll forget that, we'll scrap that. If you've got a question, stick up your hand, shout at me, throw something at me, um, and we'll do it as it comes. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. If, if it does that we get a question every minute, then we'll change that. But please do interrupt if you've got a question because I will forget to ask, but I'd love to try. I didn't, yeah, yeah, you had to bring your own ammunition, I'm afraid. I'm not, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Second apology is um, you've got notes as always, uh, a bit too comprehensive as always. I haven't yet quite learnt the art of brevity or selectivity, as we'll see today. I had to really refrain from writing a whole commentary on Mark this week. Um, the confession this week is that these hadn't been proofread. The decision was between dinner or proofreading, and I chose dinner. So please do excuse any um, mistakes that have crept in because um, there will be some, I absolutely no doubt. Let's kick off, there is, great, that's really encouraging, thank you. Let's kick off then. We're starting with Mark's Gospel. If you hear week one, you would have heard me say that Mark's Gospel, almost certainly, most people would agree, was the first of the four Gospels in the New Testament to be written. And so we're going to take them one, one per week through our sessions, uh, going in chronological order. What we're going to do tonight is do a very brief introduction on some key facts about Mark, and then we're going to journey through the Gospel together. And like I said before, we've done kind of our two weeks of team training, as it were, getting ready. And then we're going to go through these journeys. Obviously, we can't look at everything in detail. So at key uh, kind of landmarks, we will um, stop and pause and look at the story. And there'll be stuff in your notes that I don't talk about that you're very welcome to read at home. And hopefully, this is a great resource to then open the Bible at home, to read through each Gospel, and hopefully see uh, fresh, see in a fresh way, I guess, fresh light shed upon it from that. And throughout today, you'll benefit from having a copy of Mark next to you as well, so do open up your Bibles when we get there. For a long time, for many centuries, most actually of church history, Mark has been just really overlooked. He's kind of seen as the slightly uh, pointless, lower quality little brother of Matthew and Luke. Because we put Matthew and Luke together, we've got almost all of Mark. Uh, and because he is uh, writing in a much more simple way, people just kind of thought, well, we almost don't need Mark if we've got Matthew and Luke. And so he really has been terribly overlooked. He's been deemed to be less organised than Matthew and Luke, to be lacking in any kind of real substantial good theology, and to just be written in a very poor literary style. All of these things are totally untrue. I'm hoping to prove to you tonight that Mark is actually a really clever writer, that this gospel is incredibly rich with theology, incredibly good as a piece of literature, very cleverly um, put together. And there's so much we can get out of it. And I was really struck this week in preparing this at how amazing Mark is. And I do hope that tonight we can get some fresh glimpses into what he's trying to say to us through it. Let's quickly talk about matters of introduction. First of all, the author. It's actually really hard often to know who wrote texts that come from the ancient world. So any conclusions we make are tentative. We can't be certain about them. The Gospel doesn't say who it's written by. It's formally anonymous. And that title that's printed in our Bibles that we know the Gospel according to Mark would have been added in the 2nd century, so about 100 years after Jesus. 
At the point when the Gospels are being put together in codices, so in early books, they needed to be able to distinguish which one are we reading. And you needed to be able to tell your neighbour that you'd been reading or probably hearing at the church gathering uh, the Gospel according to Mark or the Gospel according to Luke. And so that's why they added the names then. Um, But there is a really strong church tradition in the early church writings which says that this was written by a man called Mark who was the um, uh, interpreter of Peter, the apostle. And so this is based on eyewitness testimony that comes from him. The most important of these witnesses is, bearing your notes, is a guy called Papias. Papias was a bishop at the end of the first century, to the end of the century that Jesus um, lived and died and was raised again in. And he has talked to a guy called John, who is debated, I don't think is the Apostle John, but was an eyewitness of Jesus. He talks about the Apostle John, then he talks about the presbyter, the elder John. And this is what this eyewitness of Jesus told to um, Papias. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he had remembered, not indeed in order of the things said or done by the Lord. For he had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him. But later on, as I said, follow Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in writing down single points as he remembered them. But to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in them. So he's saying, this eyewitness told me that Mark was the interpreter of Peter, so he was probably a guy who spoke Greek better than Peter, that when Peter is in Rome and in different areas in the Roman world, he's translating Peter's Aramaic, which is the language Jesus would have primarily have spoken into Latin, so their audience, uh, or Greek actually, depending on where they are, so their audience could understand it. And he's really uh, keen here to say Peter has, so Mark's taken these stories, but he's not trying to put them in order. And it sounds like actually he's um, addressing criticism, which says, well, the order of Mark's not very good. So we know from this witness, almost certainly this is based on the eyewitness testimony of Peter, but not trying to write um, it in a chronological order that fits uh, history. There's really good reasons to accept this. No one disagrees in the early church, and that's quite important. There was no competition of someone saying, well, I think Mark wrote it, well, I think you know, somebody else wrote it, none of that. And the very fact that this tradition assigned it to Mark, who wasn't an eyewitness, Papias tells us he's not an eyewitness, suggests it's true, because if you're going to make it up who wrote this uh, gospel, you would attach it to an eyewitness, not to someone who hadn't seen Jesus. So it's very likely it was written by Mark. And this Mark, the only Mark we really know about from the early church, is a guy called John Mark. You can see in your notes there, we hear about him in Acts. He had connections, it seems, both with Paul and going on some journeys with him, and also with Peter. And there's no reason why we shouldn't believe that this guy wrote um, the gospel. It's also really plausible that this contains Peter's eyewitnesses in particular. There are some vivid elements, things like he mentions a cushion. There's these little details he points out. He mentions in one of the stories that the grass was green. Now studies show that eyewitness accounts often include these little details which, in a sense, don't need to be shared, but they're there because they're vividly part of what someone remembers. It's also the case that Mark is of all the four Gospels in the New Testament, really negative about the disciples. They are slowest to understand. They are the most stupid, really, in this Gospel, including Peter. And Mark presents, in many ways, a very negative picture of Peter. And given that the apostles were very important and uh, respected in the early church, it's unlikely that a non-apostle would have felt comfortable to say that. So there's good reason to think an apostle is saying this, and that's why he's happy to admit that they really didn't get things while Jesus was alive. And finally, some people have pointed out, you can compare this yourself later, that there's a kind of parallel between the structure of Mark 
and some of Peter's preaching in the uh, Acts of the Apostles. So again, that's good support. This is, comes from the testimony of Peter. That's author. Location, we just really don't know. There's a strong church tradition that says Rome, that says Peter uh, ended his life in Rome. Uh, we know from the letter 1 Peter that Peter is writing from Rome, and there's a guy there called Mark, who probably is this Mark. So there's good reason or good possibility this was written in Rome, but it is really hard to prove. Likewise, it's just quite hard to date the gospel. We don't really know, but can make an educated guess. Um, I should have done something here about chronology of the early church. Jesus um, is crucified and raised, um, raised from the dead in about 33 AD. Paul's conversion happens, we don't know exactly when, but probably quite soon after that, within maybe three or four years, Paul's conversion happens. Um, and then Paul starts writing letters in maybe the mid-40s through to the early 50s, and the Gospels are written after almost all of the letters between kind of 50 and John's the latest, probably around 90. The watershed in that bit of history is 70 AD. In 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by um, the Romans, which completely changes the experience of life for Jews in the first century, and also has a big impact on Christian theology and the development of the church. And the big question, the one thing we can talk about is, was Mark written before or after that event happened? The reason we can talk about that is because in Mark 13, sometimes called the Olivet uh, Discourse, which comes in the first three Gospels, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple that's coming. And we can ask, does it sound like this is shaped by details of what had already happened, or does this sound like prediction in advance? So some people would say, well, this must be written after 70 AD, because what's said in Mark 13 sounds too close to reality to be true. However, there's two problems with that. One is it starts from the assumption that Jesus couldn't have predicted the fact that the temple was going to be destroyed, which of course is rubbish. Actually, it's just as plausible that Jesus predicted accurately the temple was going to be destroyed, how it was going to happen, doesn't help us to date it. Also, actually, uh, Mark 13, if you look at the details, isn't very detailed on how it happens. The temple, when it happened, was destroyed by fire. Mark 13 makes no mention of fire, actually, and uses language traditionally associated with the destroying of cities in the Old Testament and in Jewish texts. So there's actually really good reason to believe this was written before 70 AD. Our options then, some people place it really early, maybe in the 40s, so just uh, 10 years after Jesus, but it's unlikely that Peter got as far as Rome by that point, so that's maybe not so sure. So the most likely is it's somewhere in the 50s or 60s AD, and it's quite hard to be more specific. Peter, uh, Mark seems to assume his readers are suffering, and in the 60s under Nero there was a lot of persecution of Christians in Rome, so that may suggest this was written more in the 60s, but ultimately we really can't know. It's just somewhere around there. Distinctive features of Mark. Here's a few things to look out for. It's really interesting in Mark, Jesus is called teacher a lot, and yet barely does any teaching. Compared to Matthew, who we'll see next week, has five huge chunks of teaching uh, kind of scattered throughout his gospel. Mark has only two much shorter chunks of teaching. He's much more concerned about who this teacher actually is, and particularly how that is revealed through what he does, rather than what he actually teaches. And Mark also has this interesting quirk that the pace of the story varies hugely across um, the different sections. The first section, the kind of first uh, eight chapters, is an absolutely exhausting, fast-paced, um, bounding around the north of Palestine. And he just loves this phrase, and immediately, or and straight away, your translation might call it, call it or use. 
He uses that phrase 37 times in his gospel, that word 37 times, which is almost half the occurrences in the New Testament full stop. So this tiny writing in the New Testament uses one word almost the same amount of times as the rest of the New Testament does. And 28 of those are all in this first section. He's saying, and immediately this, and immediately that, and immediately this. It's this fast-paced scene. By contrast, the last section takes us through the last week of Jesus' life, and it takes up a whole third of the gospel. The pace has completely slowed down. And likewise, in the middle, we'll find that the pace is much slower. And that's just an interesting quirk, but also will become significant later when we're thinking about what is Mark doing as we journey through his gospel. And his style is very relaxed. He uses very simple everyday language. This really is kind of the everyday or the everyman's uh, gospel. Let's think, last thing before we get into the gospel, about geography. Geography, understanding a bit of the places where Jesus was, is really important for the gospels and particularly for Mark. And we're going to see a lot of his structure is shaped by his geography, about where he's saying Jesus is. So it's worth having a quick look at this map in your notes, just so we can get a gauge of when we hear where somewhere is, we have a bit of an idea of where it is. You'll see on that map, there are two key areas that are most important for us. That's Galilee up in the north and Judea down in the south. Judea down here in the south contains the capital city, the the religious centre where the temple is, where the religious authorities reside, which is Jerusalem. And most male Jews, as we said last week, would go to Jerusalem at least once a year for one of the festivals, if not a few times a year on pilgrimage. Also down in Judea, you'll see there's Bethlehem, so that's where Jesus uh, is born. Um, Other important places would be the Mount of Olives. You can see that little pointy bit next to the star, which is Jerusalem. And so you can sit on the Mount of Olives, and there's a valley between that and Jerusalem. You can have a wonderful view of the temple, which becomes quite important a bit later on. Up in the north, then, we've got the region of Galilee. This is mainly a collection of small villages and small uh, towns. And there's several places in here that are really important. And the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first eight chapters of Mark, all take place up in this northern region and the regions around it. So important places there would be Nazareth, obviously, which is Jesus' hometown. Capernaum, which features a lot in Mark and probably actually might have been where Jesus lived as his home during his adult life rather than um, Nazareth. Also important we'll find in the middle of this gospel is Caesarea Philippi, up in that northern bit there. And then in the middle you'll find Samaria. Samaria is home to the Samaritans and as we know we spoke last week the Jews and the Samaritans are very hostile towards each other. The Samaritans were Jews who had intermarried with the Assyrians and different groups who came in during the Old Testament story we talked about last week. And so Jews in Galilee and Judea saw them kind of as sellouts who had um, given up often on uh, the living God and worshipping Yahweh and instead were worshipping other gods and mixing with these other peoples. And so were really hated. And so if a Jew wanted to go from Galilee to Jerusalem for a festival, often they wouldn't even go through Samaria. They'd cross over the River Jordan, would go down through the Decapolis and Perea to get into Jerusalem. And we'll see that's what Jesus and the disciples do in um, Mark's gospel. So keep your mind to where that map is because that will be quite useful as we get into Mark's gospel. It's really helpful to start with a kind of big picture overview, a big picture map of the gospel before we get into it. A lot of people would divide Mark into two halves. They say there's a first half which is all about who Jesus is. So from chapter 1 up to 827, which is where Peter recognises who Jesus is. They'll say, all this is showing us who Jesus is. And they say the second half, which follows that right through to the death and resurrection, 
is all about what he does. It's what, how, who he is kind of flows into what he does. I think, however, there's another way of reading it. I'm not the only one who thinks this. This isn't my novel idea. Paying attention to a few significant details with a slightly more nuanced framework, which actually gives us a really rich theological message as we read through. I've outlined it just below here. First off, it's kind of on its own. You've got a prologue, which we'll tackle straight away, which introduces us to Jesus's identity so that we as the readers know exactly who Jesus is. But the people in the story don't yet know who Jesus is. And that's quite important as we move through. The first main section, then 1 to 8.21, is about Jesus's identity. This is these fast-paced stories. We're learning who Jesus is primarily through what he does and also through the discussions he has with people who don't like him. There's lots of controversy that uh, emerges here. And this almost all, all takes place in Galilee and the regions above and beside it. So that geographical thinking, this is all up in the north. Then you have this middle section I've called the nature of Jesus's mission. As soon as Peter correctly identifies who Jesus is, Jesus starts explaining to them what that really means and how they should live in response. It becomes about Jesus's mission and about discipleship. And so these chapters contain mainly um, the kind of the main bulk of the little teaching Mark actually records. And it's all about what Jesus is going to do and how people who want to follow him need to live. And what's interesting geographically about this is everything starts up here in the north and all of this happens from the very, very north above Galilee. All of this happens while they're traveling down around Samaria before they enter Jerusalem. So Mark's actually built this structure around this journey where they start in the north, they journey to the south, and then this final section takes place, the completion of Jesus' mission, the last week of Jesus' life, all happens in Judea, happens in Jerusalem, and just outside of the city. And there's this geographical sense that we've journeyed to get to the pinnacle of what God is going to do in Jesus. And it's only when we get to this point, this last section, that Mark shows us. Now we can really understand who Jesus is because we see what he does. That's a very quick overview of the journey. We'll now go much slower through and do some detail with. So do open Mark and have it ready. I'm going to pray because we said week one, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. When we get to chapter four, we'll find Mark himself teaches us that actually to understand the things of God, we need God to be helping us. Actually, it's up to God to help us to understand them, which is very reassuring for me. So let me pray and then we're going to dive in. Father, we are so um, hungry to encounter you tonight so hungry to understand more about your son, so hungry to understand more of what you've done to love you more, to follow you more closely, to be men and women of worship and who are true disciples of you. And we just ask, would you come and be with us now? Holy Spirit, I pray, would you come and fill each one of us? Would you come and uh, illuminate our minds as we read your word? Come and speak to us. I pray that tonight we'll go away with a fresh revelation of you. I pray you'll challenge us about being disciples of you when there's things in our lives that actually want us to to hand over or to, to change or to um, bring into submission to you. I pray you'll come and, uh, and challenge us, Lord. And would we go away from here with worshipful hearts, having uh, behold, beheld you again, Lord, seen you again and all you've done for us. We just ask, come and be with us. Come and work with us. Come and partner with us. We so need you. And we so invite you to come and be with us as we do this, Lord. Mm. Amen. Fantastic. We kick off the first, which is 13 verses, with the prologue. The opening words in the ancient text, like any text really, are really, really very important. They give us vital information about what's going to happen. And the very first verse of Mark summarises 
pretty much the whole of the gospel that will come. So we're going to actually really focus on this verse for a few moments. His account is all about the gospel. It's the beginning of the gospel. Gospel just means good news. It's an old English word. I don't know why we still use it in a sense. It's the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this isn't talking about a a genre, a type of writing. Remember, these are Greco-Roman biographies. Uh, A gospel as a genre didn't really exist. But they are about the content of what Mark's going to write. What Mark is going to tell us about is an announcement of good, good news. And when someone in the ancient world heard that word, good news, there were a few different things they would immediately have thought of and remembered. In the Greco-Roman context, the non-Jewish context, the word was used to announce good news about victories in battle. So a, a reporter basically would come, a messenger would come to a town and would proclaim the good news that the Romans had won a victory in such and such a place. It was also really associated with the emperors. The emperors were the ones who brought good news to the empire. So there's an inscription in your notes here about Augustus, Caesar Augustus, the first uh, emperor, emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. And this inscription says that Augustus's birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. Sounds very similar to Mark 1.1. And so when uh, Mark writes, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, he's instantly uh, challenging the claims of the emperor to be the one who brings good news to the Roman Empire. In Jewish thought, it was also used for military victories. We see that in the Old Testament. But it had special associations because of use, especially in Isaiah 40 to 66, about God's final promised act of salvation. You think of how beautiful are the feet who preach good news. All these little things that are coming. This word was linked with the expectation that God was going to come. All the stuff we talked about last week. God was going to come, deliver them from the Romans, save them, bring them into uh, his place as his people under his rule and blessing and this gospel is about jesus christ the content of this gospel is actually jesus himself and the reason why our gospels in the bible are narratives is because it's news not a formula and some of you have heard me say this before it's one of my my um not obsessions the things i'm quite passionate about the gospel is not a formula we often make it a formula of you know sin plus jesus dying on the cross equals heaven that's a very true but it's a very uh, minimalized summary of what the gospel actually is the gospel is a story of what god has done decisively in history and what these gospels in our bible is showing us is how that happened the very center as it were of that story jesus is identified first as the christ this isn't jesus surname but as we said last week it's a title meaning anointed one it's the greek version of the hebrew word messiah and the, the Christ Messiah was this one whom God was going to send a, a special figure who would deal with the Romans, the foreign overlords, who would deal with the problem of sin, would judge the nations, and would bring his people back into peace, back into relationship with God, to live as his people in his land under his uh, rule and his blessing. There were lots of different ideas about what this would actually look like, but probably the most common was that he would be a king descended from David, and that he would solve the world's problems basically through violence. He was going to come, he was going to battle the Romans in a big war and get rid of them. So most people who read this and hear that Jesus is claiming to be the Christ are thinking this is a warrior king who's going to come and is going to get rid of the Romans for us. I mean, he's also identified as the son of God. And again, this term has different associations depending on what your background is. In the Greco-Roman world, There were ideas about divine men who did impressive things and did great miracles. But again, it's linked to the emperors. 
many of the emperors, right from the start of the Roman Empire, when they died, were deified. They were considered to be gods and worshipped as God. People made sacrifices to them. And that means that the new emperor who's currently alive, who is the son, whether uh, biologically or whether by adoption, came, came to be the son of God. So again, this is a direct challenge, actually, to the guy who's in charge of most of the known world at the time. In Jewish tradition, Israel had been called God's son in the Old Testament. When they come out of Egypt in the Exodus, it's talked about as Israel becoming God's son. And later this gets kind of reduced down and placed upon the head of the kings. So the kings were deemed to be God's son. And though it was quite a small part, it did feed into expectations of the Messiah at the time of Jesus. Um, so we know that the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, again we talked about last week, were expecting a Messiah who was the son of God. That was one of the titles. So a Jew who hears, this is Jesus Christ, the son of God, knows this is a Davidic king. Again, they know this is the guy who's going to come and solve our problems. This does mean that son of God probably didn't mean to a first century Jew that Jesus was divine. Now Mark probably is saying that, and once he gets to the end of the story, you're meant to know that. But at this stage, all the reader originally knows that this guy is linked to God's promised deliverer. So the opening verse has told us in some detail who Jesus is. It suggested the type of things he might do. It's suggested the people he's come to challenge, the people he's come to deal with. And now what we're waiting for, as we go through the rest of the narrative, is to see how is this actually going to happen? How is his identity going to actually be worked out in practice? But before Mark introduces us to Jesus, he introduces us to John the Baptist, who's really important, and even though he's only got just a few verses here in Mark, what uh, Mark tells us about him and what John says is really, really important for understanding Jesus. So I'm going to give you a little bit of work to do now. In your notes, you'll see there, there's four quick questions about John the Baptist. I think we need to open your Bibles, get in your groups. We've not got very long to do it, only five minutes, and have a quick discussion of those questions. See what you can work out. I know I was rushing these things, so I apologise. Let's have a look. What's the first thing? Where? So this starts almost the very beginning of Mark's Gospel after this introductory statement we looked at is this quote. Where is the Old Testament quotation taken from? Good. Anywhere else? Malachi. Interesting, isn't it? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, here's something from Malachi. Side note, not actually uncommon in a sense. So, you know, he's putting together a bit from Malachi, a bit from Isaiah. Because Isaiah is the better known, the, the bigger prophet, because I think he's got more words from Isaiah there, he kind of has this mixed quotation and just says it's all from Isaiah, just basically to sum it up as a summary. So don't get worried about that. What then is the importance? What do these Old Testament quotations tell us about who John the Baptist is and kind of what he's doing, why it's important? Excellent, prophesied, and he's going to do what? Oh, he said it, yeah. Excellent. So in, um, in Malachi particularly, this is the messenger who comes before the day of the Lord. So he comes just before the decisive action of God in history to deal with all the problems and kind of to restore everything. What about in um, the Isaiah passage? Anyone look at that and pick out any significance from Isaiah 43? Isaiah 40 is the very famous passage. Um, 
comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So just before he's had this verse, uh, he said her iniquity, Jerusalem's iniquity, is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, i.e. the time of judgment for the sins is dealt with. Sins are now being pardoned. And then a voice comes crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And the chapter, as it goes on, all talks about God coming, God being with his people, God shepherding his people. So again, this is a, a messenger who is announcing the decisive action of God to come and be with his people, to come and deal with their sin, to come and end that exile. Remember the scriptural story we talked about last week. John's appearance then, why is that important? Exactly. Worn by who? The camel's hair. Yes, and who in the Old Testament wears it in that? Elijah, oh, everyone together. Exactly, yeah, Elijah wears that. Why is it important that John the Baptist is being associated with Elijah? Someone was talking. <laughs> Good, again, another allusion to Malachi. This guy is really like Elijah. Hang on a minute. The guy in Malachi who's going to come before God to his decisive act in history looks like, or he's called Elijah. He's uh, he's not Elijah, but he's no, the, yeah, the spirit of, he's like Elijah. And then what does John tell us about Jesus, about, we don't know he's Jesus yet, about the one who's about to appear, about who's about to come? He's more powerful, yeah, so first off, he's greater, he's more powerful than John, more important. He's one of the really important things. Mm, that ties with the Holy Spirit. All throughout Israel's history, the Holy Spirit has come on individuals for particular tasks at different moments. But the day they were waiting for is when the Holy Spirit would come in full measure, come upon all people. And this is Joel 2 stuff picked up by Peter in Acts 2. Uh, and this guy is going to come. He's going to baptize you. The implication is he's going to baptize any of you, all of you, in the Holy Spirit. Again, he's saying this guy is the one who's bringing the fulfillment of all we've been waiting for. God's going to live with us again because God's Holy Spirit is going to baptize us. He's going to absolutely drench us. So already, just where are we now? Eight verses in, we've already got so much about Jesus and we haven't even met him yet. But now he does arrive. We have the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is hugely significant for this narrative because of what happens. When Jesus is baptised, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, rests upon him. This is a picture of Jesus being anointed. And you remember, Christ, Messiah, means anointed one. This is a physical picture for us of Jesus being anointed by God for his task. Also hugely significant is that this voice comes from heaven and again tells us who this is. It is, the voice says, you are my son. Again, echoing this tradition that the Davidic king who's going to come is going to um, be God's son and particularly echoing here Psalm 2. He's called the beloved son, which is probably echoing uh, the story in Genesis 22 when Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son and three or four times in quick succession in that narrative, he's described, Isaac's described as your beloved son. We're meant to hear an echo. This is about, or this is being linked to a son who was almost sacrificed. We're meant to be thinking these things about sacrifice, about all that story of Abraham. And then he says, with you, I'm well pleased, which echoes a few statements in Isaiah all of which comes from a whole important chunk of Isaiah called the Servant Songs, where he's talking about this mysterious figure who's sometimes Israel, sometimes an individual, who's going to come, who's going to be God's servant, and is going to work a great work for God. So again, we as the readers, we know 
who this guy is and we're being told to get excited because of what he's going to do. And then immediately he's led away to be tempted by Satan. Mark doesn't tell us about it. Matthew and Luke will have more to say about it. But there's a kind of a a hint, an implication that Jesus has a bit of a victory here. Uh, Particularly the fact it says the angels came and ministering to him. It sounds like Jesus has defeated or um, won this confrontation between him and the devil. And that's a really important place to set us up for as we enter into the core of the gospel. Let's go to the first section, starting with verse 14. This first section is all asking the question or trying to answer the question, who is this Jesus? We need to look out for what Jesus does and what it shows about him. We need to think about people's reactions to him. We need to think about Jesus' reactions to other people's reactions. So when someone likes or dislikes Jesus, what is his response and his reaction to that? And then we need to think about just who is Jesus identified as? And these are chapters are almost all a succession of quick-fire kind of stories. But they're not just beads placed randomly, oh, I'll put that one next and that one and that one. They're really carefully crafted. Often it's good to look at groupings of stories, to not just read one story in the Gospel, but to look at the groupings and see how they're related. Jesus begins his ministry with this great statement. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And this is a wonderful, helpful summary of what Jesus believed the gospel to be. When I think about the gospel is not an equation, here is, in one sentence, a mini-story summarising the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God's promises are being fulfilled. The, The time is fulfilled. The timer has got down to zero, basically. This is the moment. His eternal rule is about to start. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's come near. It's just about to break into the world. And then the response that should be to that should be to turn away, to repent, to turn away from following any other kings and to believe, to live in light of this good news. This is how Jesus preaches the gospel. The kingdom of God has drawn near, therefore turn away from other kings and follow the true king, which is Jesus. The stories in this first chapter show us what Jesus does. We see him calling disciples, healing people, casting out demons and teaching. And all of this is about his authority. You're meant to read it and go, man, he called those people and they immediately responded. Or he tried to cast out that demon and it actually went. And when he teaches, the people say, what is this? This is a new teaching with authority. Already, first few stories, chapter one, we're realising this guy is someone really special. He's got authority like no one else seems to have. And then already in chapter two, people start not liking Jesus. It really doesn't take long before, after Jesus turns up for him to start facing opposition and particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, partly because of what he's doing and partly because of who he's claiming to be. And in chapter two through to three, the stories kind of get worse and worse and worse. The opposition gets stronger and stronger. We'll jump over the one at the beginning of chapter two, but that story of Jesus here in the paralytic is really important because Jesus is claiming to be God. He says he can forgive the sins of this man. The only person who can forgive sins is God. So Jesus is there. He's not saying, you know, he doesn't use the words, I am God. But this is just as clear as saying that to a Jew in the first century. It's a really important example. And that's where the trouble starts, basically. This guy is claiming to be God, and so the religious leaders don't like it. But let's go to the end of chapter 3, starting at verse 13. First of all, we see, this is about Jesus' response to opposition. We first see Jesus appointing the 12 apostles. 12 is really important. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is re-establishing the people of God with 12, as it were, new tribes. 
And then from verse 20 through to the end of the chapter, we get the first of something we'll see several times in Mark, which is what we might call a Markan sandwich. Mark absolutely loves these, where he places two stories either side as like the bread of a sandwich, which are somehow related, these two stories. And then he places a different story right in the middle. And we're meant to notice that these two stories are linked with something else in the middle, and they're meant to help us interpret each other. So the things on the, the bread will help us interpret the filling, or the filling will help us to interpret the sandwich. And that's exactly what happens here. Verses 20 to 21, Jesus' family arrive. And, uh, well, they don't arrive, actually, but we just are told Jesus' family, they don't understand who he is too. They basically think he's gone crazy and kind of want to encourage him to rein it back a bit and calm down. But then they disappear, and then we get the scribes. And let me find it. We get the scribes to come down from Jerusalem, and they start saying all this stuff that Jesus is doing, he's doing it by the power of the devil. Beelzebul is a word for the devil. But Jesus points out, well, that's a bit absurd, because if he's doing these things by the devil's power, he's destroying the devil's kingdom through the devil's power. That's like going up uh, against yourself in war. You wouldn't go to war against yourself. It's absurd. He's saying, I can't be using the devil's power. Because when I cast out a demon, when I heal someone, actually I'm undoing the devil's power. And actually he says, quite on the contrary, if I'm undoing the devil's power, it shows that the strong man, that's him, has already bound the devil. And this might be an allusion to the temptation. He said, actually, I've already had a confrontation with the devil. That's dealt with. And now I'm the one who's got the power to have victory over the devil. Oh, let's stop. Let's pause. Verse 28 to 30. These often stress Christians. 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sin will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty in eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is the kind of thing that Christians read and suddenly feel really worried. Maybe Paul wasn't quite right when he said there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And we all get worried and we think, oh, what have I said about the Holy Spirit and have I done this? This isn't talking about a flippant remark you might um, accidentally saying. He's helping us interpret why Jesus says this. He's implying the nature of the sin. Verse 30, the reason Jesus says this, verse 30, is for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He's talking about what they're doing. They are so entrenched against God that they actually think the act of God is an act of the devil. This isn't them accidentally saying the wrong thing or the wrong words slipped out. This is their hearts are so far turned away from God. They think what he is doing to bring restoration <laughs> to what's been broken is actually the work of the devil. Jesus is saying a heart like that is so far away, it's not going to turn to him. It's not going to receive forgiveness because it's so far away, it's never going to turn to come to him for forgiveness. So it's not an accidental slip of the tongue, but a deliberate and constant decision to oppose Jesus to deny the work of the Holy Spirit. And a truly born-again Christian will never do this. It's impossible for a truly born-again Christian to have that attitude towards what God is doing. And those who do show that their heart is so set against him, and they're not going to come to him for forgiveness. So it's not something for us to be scared about, but he's showing these guys, their heart is so, so turned away from him. And then we get back to the bread. Jesus' family reappear. They try to push through. They want to get to him, to pull him away, to tell him to calm down. But the crowd's just too big. And so the message gets through it. They're outside. And we expect Jesus to say, oh, yes, oh, well, I must honour my mother and father. And I must be nice to my brothers and sisters. And I'll go out and I'll say hello and I'll talk to them. And he doesn't at all. He looks around and he says, well, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? He says, it's these guys here. 
the guys who keep my father's word, they're my true family, he says. How do we put the sandwich together? There's clearly a theme of opposition. And even though it might seem like the opposition of Jesus' family is very different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees in the middle, actually this sandwich is telling us they're connected. It's actually telling us that any opposition, even the opposition of Jesus' family, ultimately is inspired by the enemy at work. Any opposition ultimately is the enemy having his way, the enemy intervening in people's lives. And so Jesus is saying, even being in his biological family isn't the thing that matters. Even that doesn't actually bring benefit when it comes to coming to Jesus. But there's a new family. And maybe his new family links to the story just before. The 12 men who've been chosen to be with him and to learn from him and to go out on his mission. Those who have accepted his call who have chosen to follow him when he's called them. We're being taught that what matters with Jesus is not being a religious leader, is not being biological family. What matters is choosing to follow him when he calls. So there may be opposition, but there are going to be people who are going to choose to follow him when he calls. And as we turn to chapter 4, Jesus begins to explain for us why is it that some people are just really opposed to him, they cannot accept him. This is one of only the two main sections of teaching in Mark. We've got the parables here and the Olivet um, Discourse in chapter 13. And chapter 4 introduces in particular the parable of the sower. That's actually a helpful name. The focus is on the soils. The better title is that it's the parable of the four soils. Jesus tells it and he explains it. And he's using it to explain why some of these people are rejecting the message of his kingdom. The point is not that we're meant to be the right kind of soil. I must really try hard to be the right type of soil. Actually, he's saying the reason that they responded like that and they responded like that and they like that is because this is how the soil is. He's saying the reason you guys who follow me, you've responded this way, is because of what God's done in your heart. God's made the right soil there. The reason those guys currently are unable to respond is, again, because of what's going on in their heart. It's ultimately down to God's choice. And in the middle of this, just two verses, verses... um, 11 and 12, he gives some really surprising, confusing, difficult teaching about the parables. It's not entirely clear what he's saying, but he's saying something in the lines of the parables are given actually to, in a sense, confuse. In a sense, to divide between those who are inside and who are following Jesus and those who are outside. He quotes this thing from Isaiah, where Isaiah was going to keep on speaking to the people, but actually, even though it was a simple message, it would still just confuse them. The overall message of this chapter is that God is in control. God's not surprised by the opposition. He's actually in control of everything. He's in control even of people's responses to Jesus. And that can be a message we find quite hard to hear, but it's a very consistent message throughout the New Testament. And we see it right here in the fourth chapter of Mark's Gospel. He's saying this opposition isn't a surprise. Jesus is totally in control. And it's only when Jesus works in someone's heart to give the right sort of soil that they are going to be able to understand and be able to respond and be able to follow. And then chapters 5 to 8, the rest of this section, are largely more the same. They're all these stories of Jesus doing things, all in this northern area up in Galilee and the areas around it. And these same themes emerge of, of Jesus' um, power and the people's rejection of him. Just before we move to the next section, though, there's one really odd, surprising thing you may or may not have noticed in Mark's Gospel before. A marking odyssey, I call it. It's a feature which is particularly relevant in these chapters. 
but it's also really, really key to understanding what Mark's saying. So I'm going to give you five minutes again, maybe less, just to look up those three passages, maybe decide who do each one in your group to speed it up. And there's something which each of these passages have in common. In particular, it's what Jesus says to the main character after something in the narrative happens. I want you to see what happens and maybe have a little talk about why is it that he's saying this to them. Just a few minutes, have a look at those. Okie dokie. Who wants to share what they found? What is surprising? What's the same in these stories? Maybe surprising. Don't tell anyone. Each one, Jesus heals someone. You think, what an amazing evangelistic opportunity. Don't tell anyone. Jesus, what are you doing? And it's not the only example. There's some more references there. Happens loads in these chapters, a few times after these chapters. Anyone discuss why it is happening? Why might Jesus tell them not to spread the good news? Timing. Timing. Why is it not the right time? Ah, (laughs) fair enough. Okay, yeah, yeah, he's already facing opposition, that's true, presumably for what he's saying, who he's claiming to be. Good, yeah, any other thoughts? So that's the context. Right, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I guess they're there's two different ways it's used. So there's the, the imperial concept, there's also the news reporter turning up in the town thing, so it's probably not too odd. Any other suggestions? Good thinking. I, I, I'm still so confused exactly uh, Pastor's doubt as they tried to make him a king. Now this was, this was publicised widely. Good. They were crushed on him for making a king. Okay, maybe it was dangerous. Okay, that's interesting, yeah. These, um, <coughs> this thing, this pattern, this phenomenon, it's often called the messianic secret. It's the odd fact that in Mark's gospel, particularly this first fact, this first part, Jesus doesn't seem to want people to know, actually, who he is. And it might, understandably, strike us as uh, very odd. Just to make things even more complicated, within this section, in chapter 5, there is one story where Jesus does tell the person to go and tell everyone what he's done and who he is, just to make it really, really complicated for us. Uh, and at this stage, you know, we're journeying through, we can't actually solve the enigma. We've got to read a bit more. We've got to uh, find out a bit more about Jesus to actually understand why he's telling people not to share who he is. But I want you to keep that in mind because a penny may drop uh, as we read more as we go on. The next big chunk, this kind of middle chunk of um, Mark's narrative, um, in 8.22 onwards, there are two reasons why I think it's a different section. First is that it's bookended by two stories about healing of blind men. The first one, in chapter 8, starting at verse 22, is the story where Jesus meets this blind man, prays for him, and he's partially healed, and he has to pray again for him to be fully healed. Again, quite odd. Nowhere else does this happen. It doesn't happen in any other Gospels. doesn't happen seemingly any other of Jesus' attempts to heal people. Why should he, on this one occasion, have difficulty healing someone? And then at the end of this section, it's bookended, at the other end, by another healing. Jesus, this is 1046 onwards, heals a blind man, again, very similar situation, a man who's blind, called Bartimaeus this time. But this time, he has no problems. It's a normal healing miracle, you might say. He heals him um, straight out. Again, we need to bear that in mind, and hopefully a penny it will drop. Also, up until now, all of this has happened up in the north, up in the Galilean villages, but now there's a notable move. He starts in Caesarea Philippi, actually above uh, Galilee, 
And now everything that comes, he comes down to the Sea of Galilee and then round through the city to the side of the Ridge Jordan down to Jerusalem. And several of these stories aren't giving a location. They're said to happen on the way or on the road, different uh, translations give it. And again, this is an interesting quirk of this section. It doesn't really happen in other parts of Mark's gospel, but consistently we get this little phrase, on the way, uh, coming time and time again. And both of these things will make sense as we explore more of what happens. After that odd healing, where Jesus can't quite do it in one fell swoop, we get the, I don't want to say the pinnacle, but the central uh, defining moment, maybe, in Mark's gospel. Vital to understanding his narrative. It starts in Caesarea Caesarea Philippi, right in the north, when Jesus and his disciples are on the way. Notice, important. Jesus asks them, who do the people, these people we're talking to around us, who do they think that I am? And they say, well, some think he's John the Baptist. Some people think he's Elijah or one of the prophets. That's quite interesting in itself. That shows us the kind of expectations people are having. They're expecting a prophetic figure. They're expecting Elijah. Remember Malachi 4? And then Jesus says, but who do you, you guys who've chosen to follow me, who do you say I am? And Peter stands up as their spokesperson. He says, you, you are the Christ. And we as the readers, we know that's correct. One, one, good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yet again, Jesus commands them not to tell anyone. And immediately when they say, you are the Christ, Jesus starts to teach them about what's going to happen to the Son of Man. He starts to tell them that he's going to suffer. The Son of Man is going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And then after three days, he's going to rise again. And when he says all this, there's no charge not to tell people. He doesn't say this is going to happen now, keep it to yourselves. There's nothing of that at all. There's no secrecy. And Jesus, um, sorry, Peter, he just can't understand this. He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. We're not told what he says, but he rebukes Jesus. He doesn't like what he's saying. And so in turn, Jesus doesn't like what Peter's saying, and Jesus rebukes Peter. And even goes as far as to say that Peter's response, it seems to be influenced more by Satan than it does by Jesus. Remember, chapter 3, we've learned Satan is involved in opposition to Jesus. What's going on? Why didn't Jesus want them to tell people he's the Christ, but he's very happy to speak about the fact he's going to suffer and be handed over and uh, executed like a criminal? I think it's all about expectation. No one in the ancient world who was a Jew, including Peter, expected that the Christ was going to suffer and was going to die. And no one in the Jewish context expected that one individual would be raised in the middle of history. Everyone raised at the end of history? Absolutely. No one expects one individual to be raised. Peter probably expects the Messiah to be this kingly warrior who's going to defeat, fight and defeat the Romans. He has no concept of a Messiah who might be victorious through suffering. And that's why he rebukes, Peter, rebukes Jesus. He says something to him like, no, no, Jesus, you've, you've got the script wrong. You haven't understood what all these prophecies are saying. But now that they realise who Jesus is, you're the Christ, he can start teaching them what that means. He can start teaching them what true messiahship actually looks like. And it's only after this point that he can do that. So he's very happy to speak about his suffering. He's happy to speak openly about what's going to happen to him. He's happy um, for people to know that because he knows it's not going to stir up these wrong ideas. But if he's declared publicly as the messiah, People are going to think, ha-ha, this guy's going to be gathering an army and going up against the Romans. I'm going to go and get my weapon, whether it be, I'm going to join this army. I'm going to get rid of the Romans with him. Maybe this explains that really surprising messianic secret in the early chapters. Jesus doesn't want people to know he's the Christ or the Son of God 
yet because they're likely to misunderstand it. They're likely to think, I'm going to join this guy's army. We're going to slaughter the Romans and get rid of them. The same is true of us as readers. We've heard that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but actually, if we were reading this for the first time and knew nothing about Jesus, all we've seen so far is his power and his authority. But now we're being taught what it really, really means. And interestingly, it also makes sense of that exception. You know, the one guy in chapter 5 who is told to go and tell people, that story takes place in a Gentile, a majority Gentile area, not a Jewish area. People didn't have the same expectations. It's safe for them to hear that this guy is the Christ because they don't understand in the same way what that means. It makes sense of all of this evidence. And then once Jesus has introduced the true nature of his Messiahship, what it really means, he can begin to explain the true nature of discipleship. Because being a disciple or being understanding what a disciple is follows on from understanding who the leader is. True discipleship follows the pattern of Jesus' messiahship. It involves self-denial, leading ultimately to losing one's life, through which actually one finds life. It's a topsy-turvy picture of messianism, suffering rather than a kind of warrior victory, which leads to a topsy-turvy view of discipleship, gaining your life by actually losing your life. And that, by definition, means not being ashamed of him. And so Jesus says, those who are ashamed of him, i.e. not true followers, he will also be ashamed of them when he comes. And the final verse, verse um, well, chapter 9, verse 1, has often been confusing. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. And some people say, well, Jesus is clearly talking about the fact he's coming back, and clearly he got it wrong. Some people say, you know, he got the timing wrong. It's 2,000 years later. Millions of people, millions of Christians have died. Those guys who were there with him, they've died. He got it wrong. But actually, maybe that's not what he's saying. The previous verse talked about Jesus coming again, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, no doubt. But 9.1 doesn't talk about Jesus coming with the glory of the Father or the holy angels. It talks about the kingdom of God coming with power. Maybe he's talking about something else. I think he's talking about the resurrection. There are guys there who are going to be there at the resurrection. The point where the kingdom of God comes in power actually is when he's defeated uh, the enemy, defeated evil powers through his resurrection. So the right response to Jesus' identity as the Christ who suffers, dies and raises back to life is to follow him on that path of suffering. Losing our lives for him, which means totally reorientating our lives to serve him, even to the extent that our previous lives will seem as if dead in order to save our lives. Discipleship is hugely, hugely costly just as Jesus' messiahship was costly. And again, I just feel really challenged for I struck this week, uh, thinking about this, challenged about my own, what we got, definitely discipleship, but really challenged about how we understand the gospel. Is the gospel we preach calling people to turn away from their old life to such an extent that it's as if they've died? Is the discipleship we preach costly in the same way that Jesus' life was costly? It's a real risk for us in the modern West that our discipleship becomes very watered down because we're quite comfortable. Actually, this is hugely radical, hugely difficult, hugely, hugely costly. And this key, this key theme introduces two themes which, throughout the whole of this middle section, are repeated and are really important. You get that whole thing of what Jesus' messiahship really looks like, what he's going to do, and then you get what discipleship really looks like, that it's dying which leads to life. And it's divided up by three predictions, the prediction we've already read, and two others where Jesus talks about his death, and his coming resurrection, what we sometimes call passion predictions. The passion is that part of the Gospels that tells about Jesus' suffering. And each time we get a passion prediction, and then we get teaching about what discipleship really is, normally through an illustration of the disciples not understanding what discipleship is. 
We won't do them all, but let's look at the first one. The transfiguration we'll talk about in a different week, in a different gospel. But there's this interesting story, chapter 9, verses 14 onwards, of a young boy who's healed, um, who has an unclean spirit cast out of him. There's a few elements in this story which actually are really interesting and make it slightly odd, which I think are good evidence to say that Mark wanted us to learn about discipleship from them. And remember, I said week one, our aim is to say, what did Mark want to say to his original readers? So I'm not just randomly saying I'm going to make a discipleship lesson out of this, but I'm going to show you, I think there's some odd clues in the text that show, though it's showing us Jesus' authority, it's actually linking to this whole theme of discipleship. First thing, there's much more detail about this boy's suffering than we normally get in the healing stories, normally very briefly told about the situation. We get a lot here. We're meant to really understand the severity of it. There's a focus on faith much more so than other stories. Jesus criticises the generation's lack of faith. He says anything is possible for the one who has faith. And the father says he wants to have more faith. It's a bit obscured in English. Faith and belief are the same word uh, usually in Greek. The disciples, oddly, have been unable to cast this demon out, and yet they're told that with prayer it could be cast out. And what's really odd is the fact that when this, uh, e- this unclean spirit is cast out of this boy, he's described as looking as if he was dead. He's like a corpse, and then Jesus lifts him up. It literally looks like Jesus is raising him from the dead, even though he wasn't dead, but that's the way it's presented to us. And I think all of these things suggest that this story is adding to this whole theme of discipleship. The description stresses for us how difficult the situation is. This boy's situation was really, really bad, really serious. The focus on faith is showing us that it's faith that is needed to follow Jesus, even when situations are really difficult. When actually denying yourself, taking it across, when losing your life to gain your life is really difficult, really painful. What's needed, we're being taught here, is faith. It's also the point of the disciples' inability to heal the boy and their need to pray. I'm sure when they went to do this, they did pray. Jesus can't mean, oh, you forgot, guys, you're meant to lay hands on him and pray. He must mean you're meant to have a life cultivating faith-filled prayer. You've got the kind of relationship with God where you have that faith and that authority that he's given you to do it. As I said, the odd description of the boy is like a resurrection. It's a picture of losing your life, but of Jesus having the power to bring life back again. He's trying to say, even when things look really dire, really difficult, Actually, what you need is faith, faith in Jesus, because Jesus is the one that even when you look like a corpse, because you've denied yourself, taken up your cross, you've lost your life in the hope of gaining it, Jesus has the power to lift you up, to take you, to bring you back onto the road of discipleship. And within this section, there are two more rounds of prediction and teaching, which we won't talk about, but both one has this prediction of what's going to happen, and then normally a story where the disciples get something wrong and they're still thinking in really worldly terms. Even though Jesus is saying, I've come to serve you by dying and being raised back to life. They're saying, which one of us is the greatest and where can we sit next to your thrones? And Jesus is trying to say, no, no, you've got it wrong way around. You want to be the greatest, become a servant of all. Lose your life, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Why then, this is the heading, chapter, uh, page 12, why the two different healings of the blind men? This whole section is bookmarked, that healing where the guy doesn't quite get healed first time, he has to pray again, and the second one where he gets healed first time. I think the first story, it illustrates what comes immediately afterwards. Immediately afterwards, we get that confession of Peter, you are the Christ, but then his failure to understand what this means. It's an illustration of that partial illumination. Peter has got partial illumination. He's begun to see who Jesus is, 
but he hasn't really got it yet. More needs to happen. Jesus needs to touch him a second time for him to really understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And notice that in that story, um, the man is told just to go home, not to tell anyone. And when Jesus, uh, when Peter recognises Jesus' identity, he says to him not to tell anyone. There's a link there. But then the second healing is complete and instantaneous. And notice that this guy, he knows who Jesus is. Twice he tells us this is the son of David. He's recognised this guy is important. He's linked to David. He might be the kingly Messiah we've been waiting for. And Jesus doesn't command this guy, Bartimaeus, not to tell others. But actually the people tell him to be quiet. It's really interesting. It's almost like it's reversed. The people, for the first time, tell someone to be quiet. Jesus says nothing at all about being quiet. He's illustrating that in the new part of the story we're just about to enter, because chapter 11, we're just about to enter Jerusalem to start the journey to the cross. He's showing that everything is changing. Though the disciples have to this point only partially understood as of the man of the partial healing, now they're about to see it clearly. They're about to see it fully, as with the second man. While Jesus has been telling the disciples not to share with them what he said, as with the first man, in the last Passion Prediction, there's no similar charge. Passion prediction number two, he says, don't tell people this. Passion prediction number three, the last one, is no prohibition on um, them telling other people. Just as in the second healing, there's no charge not to tell anyone. And in the next final section, Mark's going to illuminate our eyes to what it really, really means for Jesus to be the Messiah. We're going to have the same sort of Bartimaeus experience, no longer looking with fuzzy eyes, seeing men as if they're trees, trying to understand who Jesus is. Actually, in Jerusalem, we're going to see as if an instantaneous healing of the eyes, who Jesus really, really is. What about the other quirk of these chapters? There's this motif on the way. Lots of things happen on the way or on the journey. Why is this? This section has been about Jesus the Messiah and about true discipleship. Jesus has been explaining the way that he must go. He must go on the way to Jerusalem to suffer. The whole movement has been a journey to Jerusalem where he'll suffer and die and be raised again. And it's on this same way of carrying the cross, of suffering, of going to death to gain life, that the disciples must follow him. I think this journey motif that only appears here is a, a literary device. Mark's saying discipleship means following Jesus on the way to suffering, to death, to life. And I think the second healing story confirms this. At the very beginning of this story, Bartimaeus begins by the roadside, literally alongside the way. Same word, he's not on the way like the disciples, he's alongside the way. That's where he starts the story. And unlike the first man, Jesus doesn't tell him to go home. The first man who's healed partially and fully, Jesus says, go home, don't tell anyone. Actually, here he's just told to go. And where does Bartimaeus go? He follows Jesus, quote, on the way. Bartimaeus starts, alongside the way. He's healed, this picture of full revelation of who Jesus is. He gets on the way. He becomes, the text tells us, a follower of Jesus, and he follows Jesus on the way. Mark's telling us to be a true disciple of Jesus means to be on the way, following behind the footsteps of Christ, which will take you ultimately to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, just now, we're going to see what that means, what it means for Jesus to fulfill his mission and for us to follow him. Chapter 11, verse 1, kicks off the final week of Jesus' life. A whole third of Mark's gospel goes to telling us about this one week. And we're not going to cover everything that's in your notes. I'll decide as we go what we kind of jump over. 
<coughs> we start, chapter 11 is all about judgment on the temple. The temple is the very center of Jewish religious life. It's where God's believed to dwell with his people. It's where the sacrifices take place, the festivals take place. Um, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and then he walks past this fig tree and this fig tree isn't bearing fruit and he gets so angry with it, he curses it. And you think, that's quite odd. But this is the bread again in a sandwich. So bread, piece number one in a sandwich. Jesus curses this fig tree. And then he goes to the temple and he drives out the people selling things. They sell the animals to sacrifice in the temple. He drives out the money changers. The money changers were there because when you paid your temple tax, as you had to as a Jew, you had to use a certain type of currency to do it. So you go to the money exchange to get your currency to pay your tax. But Jesus comes in and he pushes them out, maybe because they are doing it corruptly, maybe given the Old Testament bits he quotes, is, he quotes because they're not doing it accompanied by a life of devotion. Actually, they're just after the money. They're not after serving the temple of God with the sacrifices and with the, the tax which will help the upkeep of the temple. Actually, they're after their own gain. But God wants their hearts. And this isn't really an act of cleansing. It doesn't deal with the problem. This, the area he was in was huge. He couldn't have cleansed it without being arrested and dealt with very quickly. It's an act of judgment. He's symbolically showing, I'm tipping all this up because you are uh, doing this wrongly. Your hearts are not orientated to God. And so I'm bringing judgment upon the temple which he symbolically does by kind of, uh, you know, throwing the tables over and um, <coughs> uh, uh, clearing it out. And then the bread at the bottom of this sandwich, the next morning they see this fig tree, the fig tree that had been alive, but that Jesus had cursed, and it's all withered up and died right from the roots. It's completely dead. And we're meant to understand that what Jesus has just done to the temple is being illustrated by the fig tree. Jesus has treated the temple like he treated the fig tree the day before. And the fig tree has withered up and died. In the same way, Jesus has spoken his judgment against the temple. In the same way, the temple is going to, as it were, wither up and die. It's no longer going to be the place where people and God meet. Chapter 11, verses 27 through to 12, 44, are all about controversy with the Jewish leaders. It's, we've had a bit like chapters 1 and 2. We've had Jesus asserting his authority, and then we get the controversy that comes afterwards. The most important part of this is, Verses 1 to 12 of chapter 12. It's called the parable of the tenants. Jesus uses a story about a guy who has a vineyard and he puts workers in the vineyard. And then he sends some servants to go and collect the fruit of the vineyard. But the workers just kill the servant. So he sends another servant and they kill him. So then he thinks, I'll send my son. They'll listen to my son. He sends his son, but they think, oh, if we kill the son, we can inherit the vineyard. We can have it all for ourselves. So they kill the son as well. Jesus says, and so what the vineyard owner will do is just to give it to someone else. This is a picture of Israel and God. The vineyard imagery is very common in the Old Testament, places like Isaiah as a picture for um, Israel. And the servants who come are a picture of the prophets. The prophets came, they came to bring God's message to the people, turn your hearts back to God. They just killed them, just ignored them. So God sends his son. But he says, even the son is going to be rejected. And so what's going to happen? God will come, he'll destroy the tenants, he'll give the vineyards to others. God's kingdom is going to be taken away from these people whose hearts away from him will be given to others. Many people think that this was the point at which the authorities decided they would kill Jesus. It, the text tells us they understood what he was saying. They understood he was saying, you haven't treated this how God wants you to. It's going to be taken away from you, given to other people. <coughs> we then reach... Chapter 13. Chapter 13 is this Olivet Discourse. It's the whole bit about Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, Jesus talking about his return. It occurs in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. 
We're going to save that to a later week, possibly to week seven, when we're doing the really hard things. It's one of the most complex bits of the gospel. But the long and the short of it is that Jesus says that the temple is going to be um, destroyed, just as he has symbolically pronounced condemnation over it by um, clearing it out with the money changes and those selling the sacrifices. He, the temple will be destroyed as it was in 70 AD. The thing we need to notice, what we're going to go on to, is at the very end, he's giving all these warnings, the temple's going to be destroyed. One day he will come back as the son of man, he will judge all people. And he says, you need to be awake. He charges the disciples to stay awake, so when the master comes, they'll be awake, they'll be ready. And again, this is one of these things we need to hold in our mind, the charge to be awake, because that's going to appear later on in the gospel. In chapter 14, we really get into the passion narrative proper, the journey to the cross. It starts with another sandwich. A sandwich which starts with um, the Jewish leaders plotting. They want to get rid of Jesus, but they think it's a dangerous time to do it, so they're going to wait. The bottom of the sandwich is that Judas goes to the authorities and offers to hand over Jesus to them. But in the middle of the sandwich is this story of a woman who comes bringing incredibly expensive perfume, which she breaks and she anoints Jesus' head with. Again, another picture of anointing. The Christ, the anointed one, is being anointed. We have here two completely contrasting responses to Jesus. People who want to get rid of him and kill him, someone who's prepared to hand him over to people who kill him, and a lady who brings probably almost everything she owns and breaks it over Jesus' head and anoints him with it. Again, it's a contrasting picture. You're meant to compare and think the true disciple is here in the middle, the one who gives almost her whole life in order that she might gain her life rather than the ones who give away the life of Jesus in order to save their own lives. In verse 12, we reach the Passover meal. This is the night before Jesus is killed. The context of the Passover is really important. This, we're told, is happening as the Passover lambs are being sacrificed. The Passover was one of the key Jewish festivals which celebrated the exodus from Egypt when God had brought his people under Moses out from Egypt, rescued them to come and be his people to live with him. And it involved a sacrifice of these lambs which has taken place, which would spare them from being killed by the angel of death. And we know from different sources, this was a time of all the times in the year when kind of revolutionary zeal, that desire to get rid of the Romans, to be God's free people again, was at its height. This was a a dangerous time really for the authorities. They know if the people are going to rebel, this is the most likely time for it to happen. In this context, Jesus sends two of his disciples to make preparations, sends them in to go and uh, find the room which will all be prepared. It's going to be ready furnished. And you think, how does Jesus know this? Who is this guy? Who's the, where's the room? What's going on? But they go and there's no explanation, but they find it. Exactly as Jesus says it will be, they find it. We see that Jesus is totally in control. We know that he can ordain that there'll be a room there. It'll be ready furnished exactly where he says, just ready for them. We're meant to see this guy is in total control of what's happening. This is 17, 21. Jesus predicts that one of the 12 would uh, betray him. And then 22 to 25 is where he takes the bread and wine, he shares it around, and he explains its significance. Interestingly, it's only Luke who adds the command to repeat it. That's not Mark's concern here. But interestingly, he talks about the bread, his body, he talks about the wine poured out as the blood of the covenant. And then immediately, he talks about the kingdom. He says, I'm going to drink wine again in the kingdom of God with you. He's deliberately linking bread and wine, the blood and the body, with the coming of the kingdom. To us, some things that can sometimes seem a bit disconnected. We think we know Jesus died for our sins and we know he brought the kingdom of God, but where's the connection? He's saying, no, no, 
my body broken, my blood poured out, is the way that this kingdom is going to come. And then 26 to 31, he quotes, oh sorry, foretells uh, Peter's denial. Some important allusions. He alludes to Zechariah 13:7, a prophecy where the shepherd is struck and his people are tested, but then are saved when they call out to God. The shepherd's about to be struck, Jesus. His people will be tested, Peter, the challenges, the denials. But then when he calls out to God, he'll be saved, he'll be restored. And this also, importantly, is happening uh, out on the Mount of Olives. And again, in Zechariah, the Mount of Olives is the place where it said God himself, the Lord himself, will place his feet on this mountain before he comes, before the great things happen. This is really significant. We're meant to see and think God is about to do something. God's on the mountain. Something is about to happen. And it's at this point that they go to the garden. Go to Gethsemane. Jesus takes with him the inner three. He says that he's going to go on to pray and there to wait there for him. But on three occasions, Jesus comes back and they've fallen asleep. They have failed to stay awake. Echo, remember chapter 13. The time's coming. Stay awake, Jesus is saying. It's a serious time. He goes away again. He comes back. They're falling asleep again. He goes away again. He comes back. They're falling asleep again. Three times they fail to stay awake. And again, Mark uses the language. He's trying to tell us this is an important moment. This is the culmination, the thing Jesus has been talking about, the thing that was going to happen. Also really important, it stresses the fact that Jesus has been abandoned. Even his closest followers can't stay awake while he prays. Even though he's clearly distressed, he's clearly very uh, upset and stressed and worried, they can't even stay awake. Jesus already is being abandoned by those even who've chosen to follow him. And then the abandonment continues because the arresting party come and they're led by one of his friends. They're led by Judas. And they treat Jesus, ironically, as if he's a violent criminal. They've got uh, clubs and swords and all sorts. Despite the fact they've seen him in Jerusalem, he's been there teaching for ages, he's not being violent, but here they are assuming he's a violent revolutionary. And actually it's the disciples who use violence. They chop off one of the ears of one of the high priest's servant. But Jesus trusts, he knows this is all according to God's plan. Verse 49, he says, but let scripture be fulfilled. Jesus is still in control. God is still working out his plan. Verses 51 to 52, chapter 14, are a very odd bit. Um, Only found in Mark, this bit where um, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I don't have much wisdom to give them this one. Some people think this is Mark himself. They think this is an autobiographical comment of Mark trying to get into the story. To be frank, there's no real evidence to suggest that. It may be there's some link to the young man who's at the tomb later, because this word um, for the young man is used only here and at the tomb, but it's hard to know what the significance is. It may be just that he is a disciple who's meant to be a bit representative of the fact that any of us would have done this, probably. We might sit there taking judgment on the disciples from running away or for denying Jesus or for betraying him. But actually, maybe the point is everyone ran away. Even you, even I would have run away if we'd been there at the time. Jesus is becoming totally abandoned. And then as we get to 1453, we enter a a sequence of trials and denials. And this, I think, may be another mark and sandwich of bread and a filling. The point would be that even though it looks like uh, the trials meant that Jewish and Gentile authorities are in control, the fact that his prediction about Peter comes true shows that he is still in control. And also, even though Jesus stays completely silent in his trials, 
actually, and he succeeds, you could say he stays true to the truth in his trials. Peter isn't true. He doesn't succeed in his trial, which is sandwiched in the middle there. He denies, he fails, really, his trial. But then jumping to 15 verse 6, the final trial actually is held between the people. And again, I think this is important. I think the fact that the final judgment that comes from Jesus comes from the people is probably meant to say we're all involved in this. According to a custom of the time, one prisoner, who would be the choice of the people, is released at the Passover each year. Quite a surprising custom in a sense, but that's what we're told in the Gospels. And as so often in Mark, we're invited to contrast and compare. There are two options. Pilate says, who do you want released? You've got Jesus, the king of the Jews, so-called, you've got Barabbas. And Barabbas had committed murder in a recent revolution. He was a violent revolutionary. He was trying to overthrow the Romans by killing them and attacking them and get rid of them. And he says um, to the people, he says, which one do you want? Do you want Jesus, the so-called king of the Jews, or do you want this violent revolutionary released to you? And the people choose the violent revolutionary. And the priests go around encouraging them to shout out. And ultimately, it's the people who decide that Jesus will be crucified. There's this kind of sense of corporate guilt. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, has come to earth and he's been rejected by the people of earth, who rather than releasing him, who there's no evidence against, would rather release a man who's known to have committed murder and would rather see Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, crucified. So Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. There's a mockery. The Roman soldiers mock Jesus and they mock him as king of the Jews. They call him king of the Jews. They put a purple robe on him. Purple is the colour of royalty. It's a very expensive colour to dye your clothes in the ancient world. They place onto his head a crown of thorns. And they pretend to pay homage. They're dressing him as a fake king and treating him as a king. They're jesting, mocking, because he claims to be the king of the Jews. And then we reach the crucifixion. They put a man called Siren from Cyrene and they push him into service to carry Jesus' cross. Notice the echo, 8.33, um, sorry, the echo. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander Rufus, to carry his cross. To carry his cross. The words are almost identical to that word about discipleship. It's deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We're being reminded as we see Jesus go to the cross, Mark's reminding us, this is what you've got to do. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to deny yourself, turn your back on your old life as if you're taking up your cross, ready to die with Jesus. And just as he was mocked as king of the Jews, he's crucified as king of the Jews. The title is placed above him to mock him. They're laughing at this guy who thought he was a king. If he's a king, we'll pin him to a tree. They're mocking him, but we are meant to see the irony. They think they're showing him how powerless he is, how silly he was to ever think he could be king of the Jews. Actually, we're watching it knowing that this is the body broken, the blood shed, which brings the kingdom. This is the one who, for all this journey, has been saying, I've got to go, I've got to die, I'm going to be raised again. The one we know is the Christ, the Son of God, who will suffer will be victorious and will bring the kingdom. We're meant to see the irony. They think they're mocking him. They think they've won. They think they've uh, conquered this silly little man. Jesus is hanging there, reclaiming the kingship of God, taking back God's kingdom for him. The people mock him as well. They laugh at his claim to rebuild the temple in three days. They call on him to save himself by coming down for the cross. Again, 
we see the irony. We know Jesus is destroying and rebuilding the temple. We're seeing him pass his judgment on the temple. And just as he passed it on the fig tree, the same thing will happen to the temple. We know he will rebuild it again in three days, because three times he's told us after three days he'll rise again. And we know that actually when Jesus, they're mocking him, saying, save yourself, Jesus is saving his life and that of others, because we know the way to save your life is to lose your life. So Jesus hangs there losing his life, experiencing this mocking of save yourself as he hangs there to save himself, to save us. And the very, very pinnacle of Mark's narrative comes at the death of Jesus. Jesus dies with a loud cry. He's being abandoned by the people. He's being abandoned by the authorities. He's being abandoned by his disciples, even from the psalm he quotes, abandoned by God the Father. The rejection of Jesus that started in chapter 2 reaches its utter pinnacle and climax. And as Jesus dies, two hugely, hugely important things happen. First of all, the curtain of the temple is torn. This huge curtain, it was literally huge, I can't remember, feet and feet long and several feet wide, is torn from top to bottom, completely open. The curtain which separated the most holy place where God dwelt within the temple from the rest of the temple, from the world, is torn apart. Not so much that people, all people can go in, but so that God can go out. God is no longer in this box in the temple. God has now dealt with the problem. God has now gone out, will now live out in the world. But perhaps the most amazing moment in Mark's gospel, as Jesus dies, there's a Roman centurion standing next to the cross. And when he sees the way that Jesus dies, he declares, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the first time in the entirety of Mark's gospel, 15 whole chapters, that a human being has recognised that Jesus is the Son of God. We've had him as the Christ. We've had him as the one who comes, um, the Son of David. He is the first one to see Jesus. This man is the Son of God. Mark is telling us that it's only when we've seen Jesus die on a cross we can truly understand what it means for him to be the Son of God. All that teaching is done all the way through from Caesarea Philippi where he's declared as the Christ and there will be the one who suffers. All this has got us to this point where now we can see clearly, like the man in the second healing, not seeing men as if trees, we see clearly because we see Jesus die on a cross, we know this is the Son of God dying for us. All the secrecy is gone. True revelation has come. So much so that it's not just that it's the first human, it's a Gentile. And even here, there's a little glimmer. This isn't just going to be for the Jews. He's not just the son of God dying for the Jews. Actually, a Gentile, the enemy, the Romans, a Roman centurion, a man involved in killing Jesus, is the first one to truly realise this is the son of God. And all that Mark's been showing us is we don't get it until we see Jesus hanging on the cross. We won't do that activity, but you can do that at home. Let me skip through. Joseph of Arimathea. Um, who's described as a man also looking for the kingdom of God. Here the also, i.e. we've just seen something about the kingdom of God. He asks for Jesus' body. He wants to bury him. Very important in Jewish tradition to bury the body as soon as possible. Pilate's quite surprised. It's very quick for a man to have died in crucifixion that quickly. And so we know that it was made certain that he really, really was dead. And then there's the Sabbath. The Sabbath, which is Saturday in Jewish tradition, where nothing happens. They weren't allowed to do anything anyway. We're not told anything. But you can just imagine the sense of disappointment, the sense of horror at what had happened, the sense of shame for abandoning Jesus, but then the sense of disaster that all their hopes had been dashed because Jesus 
had died, Jesus was gone. And the next day, chapter 16, on the Sabbath, some ladies go to the tomb. They're going to anoint Jesus' body. A very important thing to do um, to the body. When they get there, they find no body. They find the huge stone they're expecting to be over the uh, kind of doorway, the opening of the tomb, isn't there. But they do find a young man who tells them that Jesus has been raised. And he tells them, Jesus has gone to Galilee. You're to go to Galilee and you will meet him there. And Mark says, the women were terrified and they fled. Dot, dot, dot. Almost certainly, that's where Mark's gospel originally ended. A really obscure ending. Go to Galilee, you'll find Jesus there. The women were terrified, they fled, they told no one. Dot, dot, dot. You'll notice in your Bible, you've probably got verses 9 to 20 afterwards. And probably, they are in brackets. It's very unlikely that these were written by Mark, very unlikely that these were part of the original text. Um, <coughs> the way we have the New Testament um, is that we have thousands and thousands of Greek manuscripts and papyrus and books and then of translations dating from the beginning of the second century, the middle of the second century through the medieval times. And what very clever scholars have done using a very accurate science called textual criticism is to compare all of these. And because there are so many handwritten copies, there are thousands of little differences. But actually there's a very clever science of textual criticism where they compare all these texts and they can work out what is the most likely original text. So that when people have, um, like this, a Greek New Testament, this text here, there's all these bits down here which tell us we're actually a different text or something slightly different. And so all the good, very early manuscripts, which we know are very reliable, don't have chapters 9 to 20. All the really good, early, reliable manuscripts stop at verse 8, which is why it's almost certain that's where Mark stopped. The other reason why it's almost certain Mark stopped at verse 8 is if you read chapters 9, uh, verse 9 to 20, it's this weird kind of hodgepodge of things from Luke and things from Matthew and things from John. You'll keep thinking, oh, I've heard that before in a slightly different context, and that rings a bell. Almost certainly what has happened is someone has gone, Mark's gospel doesn't really work if it finishes there. We need to give it a proper ending. If nothing else, we don't actually meet Jesus again. That's the odd thing. We have an empty tomb. We never have a resurrection appearance. They think we better put Jesus back in. And so they put that together. There's two options. This means either that... Um, there was an original ending of Mark and that it's been lost, which is actually possible in a sense. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, these are written on uh, rolled up scrolls. The ends are particularly vulnerable. It's not hard for them to get damaged. Some people think very, very early on the end part of Mark got burnt or got cut up or whatever got lost and so we can't access it. The alternative, and then someone added the ending. The alternative is that this is where Mark ended um, his gospel. And... There are people who say it's a very odd way in a Greek text to end a thing, and I think that's true, but God's allowed it to end there, clearly. I think the dot, dot, dot is meant to be there. I think Mark is so clever. It's so carefully taking us on this journey to meet Jesus, to see his powerful nature, but then to begin to vaguely see who he really is and then to behold on the cross who he truly is. I think this author is saying, now you're to go to Galilee, back to the beginning, you ought to go encounter Jesus for yourself. The reason we don't meet Jesus again, I think, is because we as readers are meant to be thinking, oh, Jesus isn't in there. Jesus is up there. And now I can meet him. I can take up my cross, deny myself, follow myself, turn my back on my old life to such an extent it's as if I've died and find new life in him. And that's Mark's incredible, wonderful 
invitation to us. The dot, dot, dot is there so that we can go, so that we can encounter Jesus. It's brilliant. I love Mark. Next week, we'll move on to Matthew, a very different version of the Jesus story, but hopefully equally exciting. Thank you so much, guys. Questions I didn't do? <laughs> Any questions, just quickly? <laughs> oh. Yeah, question? Yeah. Yeah, because it's old, isn't it? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, good. So it's odd that we can see so clearly now how the Old Testament talks about the Messiah suffering, yet no Jew did. They were generally speaking interpreted as sufferings the Jews were going to experience. There was this idea of the messianic woes, which means that before the Messiah comes, the people of God would experience a lot of suffering. So something like Psalm 53 was usually interpreted as this is the, it's, you know, it's, not one person, but the one person is metaphorical for the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel will suffer greatly, and only then will the Messiah come. And it comes in, it comes into Christian theology and ideas of the Great Tribulation, and there's some truth that there's New Testament evidence of there will be, we are in a season of persecution, all the church history is a time of persecution, and that probably will get worse before Jesus comes. Um, but that was primarily what they thought. They thought they were going to suffer, and then the Messiah comes in, rather than that the Messiah would suffer himself. Any other questions? Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Same place, uh, same time next week.